You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're in the book of James, and we're in chapter 4 tonight. We did the first three verses of chapter 4 last week just to contextualize what we're reading. Remember, it's James is writing to them about what it looks like to live out spiritual maturity under Christ's teaching. And he's been talking about a lot about this issue of living out your faith, that your faith isn't just a theory, it's not just an idea, it's a way of life. And what you believe should have a deep impact on the choices you make. Things like being controlled in your speech, being careful and recognizing the power of words to affect your relationships and the course of your life. Understanding that God's wisdom is very different from ours. To to live a life according to God's ways, it's going to look very different. Your priorities are going to be very different from what is normal or what is considered natural by people in this world. And he kind of elaborates that on that in our passage tonight. Because if you're going to live God's way... And according to God's values, that's going to create tension with our culture. There's going to be difficulties and there's going to be tension. So this is where we ended last week on these three verses. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? One thing I want to point out here is I'm using the NLT this week. I normally use the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. I'm using the New Living Translation because the wording in our section tonight is weird. And NASB, NASB is a very literal translation, which is good, and I prefer that. But sometimes extremely literal translations are very difficult to understand. And the New Living Translation does a really good job of making the language more accessible So we're going to be in NLT because if I did the NASB, I'd have to spend half the teaching explaining what it means, uh, what he's trying to say, whereas in the NLT, it just words itself in such a way that it's easier to understand. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Well, frankly, that's a pretty good summary of human nature in a lot of ways. That we have this conflict... uh, He's speaking specifically to them as Christians. He's saying, listen, if you want to be a mature Christian, you can't live like everybody else lives. You can't just fight and strive and vie for position. You can't clamor over one another. This is not God's way. God's way is to view every other human being you've ever met as a member of your family who is a beloved brother or sister of the same spiritual father. And the way that we live, we talked a lot about that last week, the way that we live in our default setting is intention with one another. 
And he lays out kind of the three main values that are fueling the tension in their communities. Greed, jealousy, and taking. Which, if you think about it, is really the source of virtually all human conflict. Like every war has been because of greed, jealousy, and taking. This is what we do very easily, very naturally, whether it's governments or whether it's neighbors. We have this default way of putting ourselves first and wanting what other people have and never being content or satisfied with what we have and always looking for more in all these different categories. And what he's saying is, is this is not God's way. And as God's people who understand the wisdom of God, the nature of God, the character of God, this should have a major impact in the way we treat one another. In fact, we could just go with the opposite of these things. You know, they're motivated by greed, and God says he is generous, he's generous with us, that he abundantly provides for us, and therefore we should be generous with others. We should consider the needs of others as more important than ourselves. It's funny because I thought, okay, we'll do opposites. And then I thought, what's the opposite of jealousy? The opposite of jealousy is rejoicing in others' successes. And guess what? We don't even have a word in the English language for this. Do you realize that? What is a word for rejoicing in other people's successes? Google didn't know. It's crazy. It never occurred to me before, but this is so foreign to us, we don't even have a term for it in the English language. But to be able to look at what others are doing and looking at their joys and their successes and sympathetically being joyful ourselves because of good things that happen and good opportunities that others get. Instead of taking, God wants us to be providing. This is the backwards wisdom of God. The way that God is the exact opposite of human nature and human culture. And if you want to live God's way, it's going to put you at tension with the way that every other human being thinks we should live. And his point here is, look, our fight is not with each other. It's not with other Christians, and it's not with non-Christians. We shouldn't be wasting our time tearing each other down, expending our energy, fighting about petty differences. Someone got the job that I want. Someone got the house that I want. Someone got the spouse that I want. You know, these things are the things that actually fuel and drive us in many ways. But from God's perspective, These things are of minor importance compared to the spiritual reality that we find ourselves in. People are suffering all over the world. There is great injustice. There are wrongs upon wrongs where people are starving, people are abused, people are broken, and To fight over petty things and to have envy and jealousy and strife and to expend our energy doing those things when there's so much need is truly bizarre from God's perspective. We live in a world where people are alienated from their creator. They don't know 
how amazing they are. They don't know how amazing God is. They don't know how God can come into our lives and give us purpose and meaning and connections with one another. They lay in their beds at night wondering, is this all there is? And they're these fantastic beings created in the image of God. We are in a desperate situation from God's perspective, and we're more focused on our own needs and our own desire to be respected or, or revered or loved. We're more focused on what do we get ours while people are suffering and need to be reconciled to God. The founder of the Salvation Army had a vision, and a, and a painter, you know, kind of put it together. But this painting speaks volumes about what James is talking about. The idea here is that the world, the world system is this tumult. It's this ocean, and it's stormy, and people are drowning. It's like we've all been shipwrecked in the middle of a storm, and it's, it's clear that not many of us are going to make it. And yet some have found this platform that they can climb up to, and as they're there, they're not thinking about all the death and, and destruction around them. They're thinking about working out, or they're thinking about making money, or they're thinking about falling in love, or they're thinking about meeting their own needs. And it's such a, a poignant picture because this is very much what God is describing through James is how much sense does it make in the middle of a crisis? The human experience is a crisis of epic proportions, of eternal proportions. And no, there's nothing wrong with playing the guitar or working out or falling in love. But when those things take precedent over the fact that people are dying without knowing God. We have to allow ourselves to be shifted back into that mindset. And boy, does James do that. He says, you adulterers. And you're like, wow, okay. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you the enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And so you can tell that he's fully aware of what's happening. He just told and called an entire group of people adulterers, said, you know, you're going out on God, and that makes you the enemy of God. And just to be clear, if you didn't hear me the first time, that makes you the enemy of God. And you're like, wow, that is heavy. But from a, a very important perspective, it's totally true. And James didn't invent this. This is language that God himself regularly uses in Scripture. Jeremiah is even more intense than James. Look at what Jeremiah said to the people of Israel, the prophet of God. Look at the shrines on every hilltop. Is there any place you have not been defiled by your adultery with other gods? You sit like a prostitute beside the road waiting for a customer. You sit alone like a nomad in the desert. You have polluted the land with your prostitution and your wickedness. That's why even the spring rains have failed, for you are a brazen prostitute and completely shameless. Yet you say to me, Father, you have been my guide since my youth. Surely you won't be angry forever. Surely you can forget about it. So you can talk. But you keep on doing all the evil you can. <laughs> That's God. 
talking to people who just prioritize things other than him in the midst of this crisis. It's very uh, eye-opening, you know, because we live in so much comfort. We have so much that we can, we can relax and we can ignore and we can be lulled to sleep in the middle of a horrendous storm by the cares of this world and by the perspective of what he calls the cosmos. This term that he's using, world system, also comes up frequently in the Bible. In the Greek, the word is cosmos. And it has a very specific meaning within the context of biblical language. The cosmos is just the world apart from God. And it says it's not just a world, but it's a system that rules the world. In 1 John 5, 19 through 20, he says, We know that we are of God and that the whole cosmos lies in the power of the evil one. That the operating wisdom of the world is not God's wisdom, It's his enemy's wisdom. It's the people that are, and the beings that are contrary to him with the opposite values of what he values. That the world is a system that has been meticulously planned to get people to forget about God, to forget about the crisis that we're in, to lull them to sleep and to distract them primarily with love of self. That's the design of God's enemy. And it's frankly not very difficult to get us focused on ourselves. 1 John 2, 16 and 17, for all that is in the cosmos, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the cosmos. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. There's a tension and there's a conflict between God's way and everyone else's way. And the way to fight that battle and fight that war is not to get angry, is not to view people as our enemies, but it's to understand they are the mission. The people who are shaking their fists at God and living their lives their own way are the very people that we are called to love. The cosmos is just man apart from God doing what is natural to man. That's all it is, is this system that's designed to distract us from the things of God. So whether that's material goods, whether that's looking for fame, looking for respect, looking for people to view us a certain way, looking for comfort, it's about living that mindset of trying to get what you deserve. I remember as a young believer, I have a, a, a lifelong detriment. I have sort of an overdeveloped sense of justice, but it's not God's justice, it's my justice. And I remember as a young believer thinking and feeling like I, a lot, like I wasn't being treated the way that I deserved. I had a high opinion of myself. And I was being mentored by a guy named Mark, Mark Gavers, and I was in conflict with one of my roommates. I remember saying to him, he's not treating me the way I deserve. And he looked at me and he kind of grinned and he said, what do you deserve? And I said, well, respect. And he said, not according to God. According to God, what you deserve is hell. And it was like, gulp. I mean, theologically, that's true. That's what we all deserve because of the evil 
and the selfishness that we ourselves have perpetrated, what we deserve is judgment. So the last thing any of us should be wanting is what we deserve. And the fact that we don't get what we deserve is called grace. It's called the love and the mercy of God. And so that mindset of give me what I deserve is something that's very much a part of the world system. He says, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is one of those parts where I was like, that's a strange wording, and it's even stranger in the NASB. But what he's saying here is, is that when we come into a relationship with God, it says that the Spirit of God comes and dwells inside of us permanently. We were created to be vessels of God's Spirit. And when we are in tension and conflict and rebellion against him, he cannot dwell within us the way that he was supposed to, the way that he intended to, and the way that he created us. But that when we turn to him in faith and receive the forgiveness that Jesus provided by dying on the cross, that the Spirit of God comes and dwells inside of us, and it's permanent, that he comes and, and lives within us. And that when we, having that spirit, continue to operate as though the things of God don't matter and continue to be selfish, God is like zealous. He says he's passionate that we would be faithful to him as he lives inside of us. It's like he's living, his, he's living in us and we're committing adultery against him while he's with us. That's the imagery that James is using here. And he says, God does not like that. That we live in tension either with the world or with God. And those are the two choices. And God wants us to be connected and reconciled to him. What we want. What we want is to be appreciated we just want people to think that we're valuable. We want them to think that we are cool, that we, um, that we deserve respect. We want people to honor us, to hold us in high esteem, and we want significance. None of those things are bad things. But how we get them is supremely important. What God wants is something entirely different. You see, we seek these things by whatever means necessary, but God wants to give them to us for free. What God wants is for us to know that he values us. God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb, created in my image for the express purpose of being vessels of my spirit, of relating in love with me and with one another. That the whole purpose of, of your existence is to love God and love your fellow man. And that is the only thing that matters. And all of these other things are distractions. 
are things that will lead us away from the way of God and lead us towards self-destruction, and that what God wants is to save us from that destruction. In the eternal sense, and that he doesn't want us to undergo the judgment, he doesn't want us to get what we deserve, but also in the temporal sense, in the here and now, we are very self-destructive people. And we do a lot of bad things that hurt ourselves and others, and God wants to give us meaning and purpose and joy in this life as well as in eternity. This is one I remember the first time I realized this, and this is strange, but God wants to give us glory. I think we think a lot of, in terms of a lot of like, well, God wants to be glorified. We, God wants us to recognize his glory. And that's true. But when we recognize God's glory, you know what he does is he turns back and he glorifies us. He magnifies us. He, he shows others how great we are as we show him, them how great he is. God wants people to understand how valuable and wonderful and how in love with you he is. And that's what all of us want, is for everybody to know how great we are. And God says, I think you're greater than you think you are. And I want others to know it too, but let's do this the right way. And then he turns around and he gives us meaningful work to do. The work of loving others, of serving others, of of fighting injustice. The work of connecting and helping others realize that they can have a relationship with him too. The work of them understanding how great God is through the way that we love them and treat them and share our lives with others. So the big question here is, how do I break up with the world system? What are the steps or What are the practical things that I can do if I'm living in the midst of this tension and friendship with the world is enmity with God and I'm an adulterer because I have the spirit of God and yet I'm living as though I'm living for self? James gets real practical with that. He says, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. (laughs) I think that's kind of bizarre. You know, like, Is that what God wants, like sullen, like gloomy, non-joyful people? You know, he started out this book by saying, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And I want to break this down a little bit because I think it's really important. What he's saying is, is if you want to break up with the world system, you first have to humble yourself before God. Meaning that you have to come to the understanding and the realization that you have a problem. All of us here who consider ourselves to be Christians reached a point where we realized we had a problem. We were trying to be good people or we were trying to make our way, but we, we were hurting others, we were hurting ourselves, we were adding to the problems of the world and we realized that we couldn't change ourselves. 
We came to an end of ourselves. And as we learned about God and we learned about his offer of a personal relationship through Jesus Christ and to come and not only live with us but to empower us for real change, we decided that sounded pretty good. We really just threw up our hands and said, I can't change myself. I've tried. God, will you come into my life and change me? And when he says, humble yourself before the Lord, that's what he's saying. He's saying, realize that you are not God and you need God. That's all that is. And that's the beginning place of starting a relationship with God and breaking up with the world system. The next thing he said is, he said, resist the devil and he will flee. And all he means by that is that we have to fight the temptation to be selfish. There is a part that involves the will on our part, which is deciding I don't want to live this way anymore. I might fail and I might screw up, but when I do fail and when I do screw up, it's not because I've changed my mind about what's right and wrong, it's because I'm weak and I'm human and I have faults. But when I do screw up, I want to recognize that I have. I've been, there I was again, committing adultery with the world system. Thank God he loves me and he's generous and he's kind and he has already forgiven me. But I have to admit that I still have problems and I still fall short and I still hurt people. But coming to that place where you're willing to recognize I still have problems and I still fail is an incredibly important part because that's the tension. If you're living your life, if you're a Christian and you're living your life like you're in the world, then there's no tension, there's no fight. And he's saying there needs to be fight. There needs to be the recognition on our part that this is something that we need to choose against. And it is not like in the twinkling of an eye and the sprinkling of the fairy dust, your nature is transformed into something that is wholly good. We still have a fallen nature. We're still inclined toward evil, but there can be fight now. We have the tools before God and in connection with him to be able to begin to withstand those natural inclinations. And then he says this, which is kind of beautiful, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I think a lot of us maybe are at a point at different times where we realize that we need help, that we're broken, and that we are not the people that we want to be, and that we have problems. And we may even feel that sense of tension, I wish I was different, I want to be different, I agree that I have, I have wronged others, God, will you help me change? But then we wrongly conclude that God will not draw near and he will not come into our lives and he will not empower us to change until we get our act together. We feel like I have to start changing the way that I live and then God will come into my life. But that's actually the exact opposite of what God says over and over and over. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. You don't have to change. You have to come close. 
Spend some time praying with God. Spend some time getting into the word of God. Spend some time connecting with people who know God and who are on the same path and on the same journey. Spend some time putting the truth of God into practice. That it is better to give than to receive. Start to serve even though you don't feel good and even though you feel like a hypocrite because you know that you're living in rebellion against God. Take small steps toward doing the things that God says we should do and find that God is waiting with open arms to help you take the next step further. One of the greatest lies that we believe is that when we rebel against God, that he departs from us. But when we rebel against God, what he does is say, come home. Come closer. You're struggling because you are not drawing near. And that's the imagery that's so important for living a life of spiritual maturity is drawing near to him. Then he says this weird section of weep and mourn and have no laughter and no joy. And all he's saying there is this. Don't be okay with your wrongs. Don't just sit back and say, well, yeah, I got problems, but they're not as bad as a lot of other people's problems. Take your weaknesses, take your sin, take your faults seriously. It's a sober thing. Jesus Christ had to go and die on the cross because of our rebellion Our sin is no laughing matter, and it should not be approached with a light heart. It's not that God wants us walking around, whipping ourselves, and throwing ourselves down a flight of stairs and being gloomy because we've sinned. No, he wants us to live a life of joy and a life of freedom and a life of love. But he also wants us to take seriously the fact that we are in rebellion, and that that rebellion cost him a heavy price, and it's causing destruction in our own lives. We should be bothered by our wrong behavior, and then we should praise God for forgiving our wrong behavior, and then we should move towards God and others with love. He says in verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up with honor. We want honor, we want to take honor, we want people to give us honor, we want to be respected, and when we don't get what we want, we get angry, and we get jealous, and we get envious, and we become takers, and we exacerbate the problem. God says, let me honor you. I remember one of the definitive moments and times in my career, I had been a pastor in our student ministries and our college ministry for many years. Uh, for 13 years, I was a part of the, the college ministry, and we decided it was time to go and start working with adults and, and getting into the adult ministry. And the way that our church was set up at that time, there wasn't like a really clear path to do that. And it, it was vocational. My job was I was a pastor in the church. And there were a lot of Uh, our elders and and a lot of our other pastors who sort of oversaw me and were my bosses agreed that it was time to do that. But there was like a year where they were trying to figure out what to do with me. 
And I was used to teaching large meetings of hundreds of people like this. And it's something I really enjoy doing and really feel passionate about. And in order to join the adult ministry, I had to stop doing that for a year. And I wasn't overseeing home churches. I wasn't doing any of the things that I had done. I had to give up a ministry where I was overseeing four or 500 people that was growing and sit for a year while they figured out what God wanted to do with me. And I remember the most difficult aspect of that time was the most regular accusation thing that was happening in my own heart was I was becoming fearful that I had been a fake and a fraud and that what had happened was I had been written out of the plan that God had finally corrected this cancer and this tumor out of the body of Christ and that I had nothing good to offer because I had a black heart. And I remember really wrestling with that and feeling like, yeah, that could be. And I started getting bitter at some of the people who were overseeing me, some of my, uh, my boss, because it was like, don't you have a plan for me? Don't you have something you want me to do? And I would see opportunities that other people were getting, and I would just be so frustrated because I, I felt like I want to be in the game and I'm on the bench. And God did something really wonderful, really miraculous during that time. He moved in my life repeatedly, almost on a daily basis. And the question that he asked me was, do you trust me? This isn't about what your boss thinks. This isn't about what the people in the church think. This is about, do you believe that I am the head of the church? Do you believe that I am the sovereign God and that I have a plan for you? And are you willing to trust me with that? Or are you going to set out on a path to bring yourself honor? It was very painful and very hard. But I'm so glad that I honestly came to a point where I said, God, if I'm stuck in neutral, if I'm on the bench forever, I want to be on your bench. And God did open up doors, many doors, in a relatively short period of time. I went from they didn't know what to do with me to the new senior pastor of this church in a period of five, six years. And I can't tell you how that happened. I just know that I was willing to trust God that he was in charge and that he was gonna do with me what he wanted to do with me. And I think that that's something that we regularly have to wrestle with no matter where we are in our walk, no matter what our position is. If you think that you're on the bench you may be on the bench, but the question is, is, does God want you on the bench right now? And if so, how can you use that time productively? What is it that he's trying to show you? How is he trying to hone you and shape you so that you can be used more? It's very likely that your gifts and your abilities are being underutilized. But if that is the case, there are reasons for that that God will show you if you ask him. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up with honor. Then he ends with this. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law not to judge whether it applies to you. I'll pray. 
God, thanks for this time together. Thanks for your word. Thanks for coming into our lives. Thank you for your grace. And we pray that we can have meaningful time here together tonight. We can enjoy the weather, enjoy the fellowship. And we pray for the people in our lives who don't have that. We pray that we would see them uh, come to know you. And we would see them come to hear the word of God and, and to meet you in a personal way. And pray that you would use us powerfully in, those, in, in our family and in our neighbors and our coworkers' lives to help them find you. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.